This is Sean Bull and Rob McClure with your local news, coming to you live via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The Bad River Band of Lake Superior Chippewa made a request in federal court today to shut down the Enbridge Line 5 pipeline over concerns about shoreline erosion. That's according to the Wisconsin Public Radio. The Bad River Band say the erosion from spring flooding is jeopardizing the integrity of the site where the line meets a river bank. Attorneys representing the band say the Bad River itself is now less than 15 feet away from the pipeline. They argue that continued erosion could expose it and result in a rupture. Enbridge said in a statement that there was no risk to the pipeline. Line 5 carries up to 23 million gallons of crude oil and natural gas liquids each day from Superior across northern Wisconsin and Michigan to Ontario. Attorneys representing the Bad River Band have requested a decision on the motion by Friday. Governor Tony Evers today signed two bills that look to reduce the amount of reckless driving and carjacking in the state by increasing penalties for both and creating new carjacking section of the criminal code. Both bills increase prison sentences for the crimes. Reckless driving and carjacking incidents have substantially increased in Milwaukee in the past two years and as a result have become high-profile political issues. Evers also asked GOP legislators to consider other budget proposals, such as grants for traffic calming and hiring additional highway patrol state troopers. A Canadian mining company has been granted approval to begin exploratory drilling in northern Wisconsin, so long as it meets a few additional requirements, according to the Associated Press. The Minerals Concern wants to conduct exploratory drilling on a 40-acre site in Taylor County within the Shaquamagon Nicolay National Forest. It estimates that the site may contain up to 4 million tons of ore, primarily copper and gold. But the company will have to abide by strict conditions to protect the wetlands and waterways surrounding the site. Sulfite ore has not been mined in Wisconsin since 1997. Pollution from the last sulfide mine in the Flambeau River area led to a moratorium on such mining, but that was repealed in 2017 by the Republican-controlled legislature. Residents in the northeastern areas of the village of Oregon are being urged to flush the water lines in their homes due to high chlorine levels. Residents should flush their faucets for several minutes, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. The affected area includes North Perry Parkway, Mary Hill, and Oak Street. This morning, a water operator with the Village of Oregon Water Utility noticed the water supply's residual chlorine level was higher than normal at one of the village's wells. Four people were injured after an explosion in a west side condo yesterday afternoon, according to NBC15. The incident on South Gammon Road damaged all six units in the building. A nearby eight-unit building also sustained damage in the blast. In total, 21 people were displaced by the explosion, which the Madison Fire Department is still investigating. And those are the evening's headlines. Now onto the rest of the day's top stories. After years of moving from downtown church basements to temporary shelters around Madison, the city's first permanent men's homeless shelter is expected to begin construction next year. Last night, city officials shared their first details of the project to show the benefit of building a shelter from scratch. WORT producer Nate Weigehaupt has more. 
After decades of cramped basements, years of debate, and months of reaching out to the community, city officials provided their first glimpse of the proposed men's homeless shelter at a public information meeting last night. For decades, men experiencing homelessness in Madison were housed in church basements in downtown Madison. When the pandemic hit, the city closed those cramped basements and have been bouncing around temporary shelters around the city ever since. Last year, the city opened their temporary shelter at Zaire Road, which will remain open until the city's first permanent shelter is built. That permanent shelter, located at 1904 Bartillon Drive, will be purpose-built, meaning that the shelter will be built from scratch. Previously, the city had simply repurposed old spaces to fit their needs, says Jim O'Keefe, the city's community development division manager. Spaces like church basements, school buildings, commercial real estate spaces that were built with entirely different uses in mind and then converted to, to make work as shelters. And they generally did so at the cost of comfort and functionality. By building a shelter from scratch, the city will be able to create a more welcoming space for those experiencing homelessness, says Lynette Rhodes, a grants supervisor with the city. At the end of 2022, the city worked with Denver-based architecture firm ShopWorks Architecture to reach out to the community and create their initial report for what the shelter would look like. Over the course of two months, they spoke with nearly 150 people about what they would like to see in the new shelter. About half of those ShopWorks spoke with were people actively utilizing homeless services in Madison, with the other half consisting of service providers themselves. ShopWorks Architecture was only brought on as a design consultant for the shelter. It will actually be designed and built by Madison-based architecture firm Dimension 4. When the contract with Dimension 4 was approved in August of last year, they estimated it would cost around $1 million to design the shelter. One of the largest changes to the proposed shelter that is not currently possible at the temporary Sire Road shelter is smaller sleeping quarters. Rhodes says that this will help provide individualized services. A lot of individuals that responded to our survey and in the focus groups talked about um, right now our overnight shelter. It's a very, very open, wide space, um, which means if there are conflicts or if someone is not akin to loud noises or individuals, it's very hard for them to be placed someplace else. So in our design, we really looked at um, creating more privacy and therefore Uh, maybe some individual or smaller sleeping pods, we're calling them. City officials say they're working to design five separate sleeping quarters with room for about 30 to 50 people each. Brian Cooper with the city's engineering division says that they are also looking for ways to lower operating costs. We're looking at a commercial kitchen, and that is with the intent of bringing food service in-house versus catering. A significant amount of the budget currently is being spent on catering uh, due to the fact that none of the temporary shelters to date have had a commercial uh, kitchen in the space. Currently, the temporary shelters spend around $1.5 million per year on operating costs, such as cleaning, security, and food services. The permanent men's shelter will also expand on the services already provided at their Zaya Road shelter through organizations like Madison Street Medicine, Cabba Recovery Services, The Beacon, and Porchlight Inc., who will be operating the shelter.
Last night's meeting was the first of three public information meetings about the proposed men's shelter. Another meeting will be held tomorrow night in person at the East Madison Community Center from 5.30 until 7. Construction on the shelter is expected to begin next year and is expected to last until the beginning of 2025. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Last week, the state's Republican-led Finance Committee slashed more than 500 items out of Governor Tony Evers' proposed budget, including multiple items meant to support teachers and students across the state. While the budget is still being picked over by the legislature, the State Department of Public Instruction says they're not being heard. Earlier today, retired teachers with Madison Teachers Incorporated, the local teachers' union, set up shop in the Capitol Rotunda, hoping to reach those lawmakers still deciding the state's budget. And amidst the mellifluous sounds of the Tri-State Homeschool Performing Arts Choir, who were in song on the far side of the rotunda, our producer Nate Wegehaup spoke with Sarah Bringman with MTI and John Johnson, the deputy state superintendent with the DPI. My name is Sarah Bringman and I'm here with Madison Teachers Incorporated Retired Unit. So just to just to start, what are you doing out here today? Well, we came out because we are very concerned that in developing the biennial budget for the state of Wisconsin, we learned that the joint fiscal group had not made contact with DPI. And DPI has put out recommendations relative to the biennial budget. And obviously, being an agency in charge of education, they, they know what is needed to help teach our kids. So we decided to make it easier if they couldn't, if legislators couldn't manage to walk the block over to DPI, we would actually come into the building. And we have brought with us information from DPI on a number of topics that are important in their suggested budget. And now tell me a little bit about yourself. I know you're with MTI here, but uh, tell me about yourself. I was, I'm a retired teacher. I taught special education in Madison at Madison Schools for 33 years. And after that, I worked for 10 years at the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus, um, developing future teachers in special education. So altogether, I've had a 43-year history in education. I am retired and have been fully retired now for four years, um, but I do spend two days a week in a middle school classroom volunteering, helping um, students develop their math skills. I love teaching. It was a career choice that worked very well for me and then with my family as well. Both my son and my daughter work in Madison Public Schools. And so you retired a few years ago, but you're still around in the schools. Over the past, let's say, two years since the last budget, what have you, what have you seen inside the, the, the Madison schools? It's difficult because that was also in the midst of the pandemic. So you saw some interesting things going on. Mostly um, what I've seen is not enough support in the classrooms. We have, um, we continue to budget not based on frontline workers. So our classrooms need teachers, our classrooms need educational assistance. Um, we, we need to shore up our 
custodial workers. I mean, they're just not enough of any of those people that are actually working in schools. And so while Madison's budget, the school district budget, has just looked at cutting 66 teachers, an additional 30 plus um, educational assistants, their budget only looks at cutting two administrative positions. So we don't have our frontline workers being supported. The money is going to the wrong place. And that's what I mostly see. We have kids coming out of the pandemic who are really suffering from trauma. They've lost family, they've lost friends, they've lost contact with each other. And as a middle school teacher, contact is you know essential to their social emotional development but we don't have money going into helping these kids recently the republicans have cut for example all the mental health supports in the recommended budget by um, our governor obviously it's more important to um, pass legislation that would allow 14 year olds to deliver alcoholic beverages but not to provide 14-year-olds with an opportunity to access mental health supports in the schools. What would you like to see in the budget to to help support teachers specifically, because you uh, are a retired teacher, what would you like to see to support specifically teachers? I think what's important is to increase their per pupil costs. That has not been increased in the last four years. And so as inflation is skyrocketing, teachers' salaries have been maintained at a very low level. What that means is that teachers are exodusing. <laughs> they're leaving Madison, they're leaving Wisconsin to work in other states that recognize the importance of their role. So I would like more money being given to the public schools so that they could afford to pay their staff more money. I would also like to see them fund special education I was a special education teacher for 33 years, and I think it's essential that since it's a mandated program, that both the state and federal governments should be picking up some of those costs, a lot of those costs. And in Governor Evers' budget, he recommended that they cover up to 60% of that. What happens if you don't cover the cost of a mandated program is that those monies are taken from other programs. So in my 40 plus years of teaching in the Madison area, what I've noticed is that we've cut other essential programs. We've cut some of our music programs, some of our art programs, some of our language programs, because they're not mandated. But those are essential programs in providing those experiences for kids is essential, and yet they've been dropped. Um, so I, I would like them to pay for special ed so that it's not affecting other programs in the district. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. John Johnson, I'm the Deputy State Superintendent of Public Instruction. So budget writing currently in process and the Joint Finance Committee. Uh, what has sort of communication been like so far between DPI and the uh, budget writing committee? Well, you know, the, it's it's been a different kind of year this year in terms of uh, of, of our interactions with uh, the committee on joint finance. Um, you know, we 
the governor, Governor Evers, uh, took the state superintendent under lease budget um, almost in totem, in toto, and uh, and adopted a lot of the important investments that she that she put forward. Important investments for every school district in the state, every local school in the state that would help them really retain teachers, provide important classroom instruction um, on all different kinds of topics uh, throughout our state, provide uh, there was special new categorical aid program, which means a new funding source for student mental health services. Um, there was important components around the teacher pipeline and expanding efforts and funding efforts on getting more people in the classroom, helping to fund student teachers, helping to fund um, the, the folks who help student teachers become better practitioners before they come into our classrooms. Um, there were lots of really important pieces, um, all in the, in the state superintendent's budget and therefore in the governor's budget. Last week, the Committee on Joint Finance stripped out a lot of those really important pieces. So, um, and I, you know, as Deputy State Superintendent, the State Superintendent, a lot of our leadership had gone to testify at the different public hearings. And I can, I can tell you, my, you know, what I saw, I saw dozens and dozens of, of parents and some kids and school board members and superintendents and teachers at every single budget hearing. And there's, there's a very good, beautiful choir here in the Capitol today. But at every budget hearing, we heard about the needs for local school district funding. We heard about the, the real critical point at which public schools are right now in terms of serving kids, in terms of retaining educators, in terms of really providing critical programs around mental health, around food for kids, around advancing reading in our state. We had a budget initiative on that. Those were all taken out last week. Um, so what I'm hopeful for is I'm hopeful for those voices that are still there, that are still present. And today we have voices of retired educators here from Madison who have been here uh, the last couple weeks to make a presence here at the Capitol, just like there's a presence and there's a call across our state for more funding for public schools and more funding that's focused on really what are, what's needed for kids today. And tell me about your relationship with MTI. Obviously, they have the table uh, set out there. What is, what is uh, your relationship with them? On, on a personal level, I was a teacher. I was a teacher. I was a teacher in Stoughton. I was a teacher in Sauk Prairie School District. And I was a teacher here in, in Madison Public Schools. So my, my personal connection is, is I worked with kids with a number of the folks who are here today. And I really I love to see people who have served for decades um, this city and the kids of the city and the families of the city and then in their retirement coming back in service advocating for funding for our classrooms funding for our educators funding for advancing the learning for every kid in the state and so I'm glad to be here to be honest to see some folks who I've known for years and years advocating for what's right uh, for our state and really for what our future and what do you want the Republicans in the Joint Finance Committee to know about uh, the needs in education today? To be honest, it's a bipartisan thing. I'd want the Democrats and Republicans in the whole legislature and especially in the Committee on Joint Finance because they right now have the budget in their hands um, and they're meeting on that all this month and part of next month to know what really is needed out there. We know that that kids went through a lot in the last three years. We know that there was a lot of interrupted learning in the last three years. 
We know that this state um, has in the last 10 years really held a lot of public school funding flat in terms of the revenue caps that are imposed by the legislature in our districts. We know that the legislature in the last budget really zeroed out state funding increases in terms of what would impact the classroom and relied on federal pandemic one-time only funding. No other state did that to that extent that relied on that federal one-time funding. All the other places that when I talk to state leaders in education across the nation, they talk about all the different great programs they were able to bring to bear in the last two and three years to recover from that learning loss and to recover from different unfinished learning. A lot of our districts, all of our districts, were forced to pay to keep the lights on with that federal funding and other aspects of, of operations, which wasn't the case elsewhere. So with all that in that context, with the context of the largest state budget surplus ever in this state, which is six to seven billion dollars, this is the time. This is the time to make that investment, and it's a long-term investment in this state's future in every public education kit. John Johnson's Deputy State Superintendent, thank you so much for talking. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. And it, my pleasure to be here listening to wonderful, wonderful music at the Capitol and seeing great advocates for our public schools. For WORT News, I'm Nate Wiggyhout. Time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sean Bull, here with my co-host, Rob McClure. Thanks for joining us. Mandela Mandela is an elected member of the South African National Assembly, community leader, and the grandson of the late Nelson Mandela. Mandela will be coming to Milwaukee's Turner Hall next Monday on the 75th anniversary of the Nakba, a brutal mass expulsion of Palestinian people from their homeland in 1948. Mandela spoke with WORT contributor Greg Jaboski about his trip to Wisconsin and why he is fighting for Palestinians. My name is Nkosiswell Velile Mandela. I'm a member of parliament in the majority party, being the African National Congress. I'm also the chairperson of the Portfolio Committee on Cultural and Reform and Rural Development. I'm a traditional leader of uh, the traditional council and as uh, the chief of uh, the Mandela royal family. But I'm also uh, known as a voice for the oppressed in particular, the last colony in uh, uh, Africa being Western Sahara, and more closer to my heart, the Palestinian struggle for the Palestinian people. Now, you'll be touring the, um, taking a tour of the United States uh, very shortly, quite a few cities, and it will start here in Wisconsin, in Milwaukee, on the uh, 75th of, notorious anniversary, the 75th anniversary of the, um, of the Nakba on May 15th. Can you tell our listeners who may not quite understand why is, uh, is someone from South Africa touring the U.S. to speak for and uh, explain what is happening in Palestine? Well, uh, for, for us as South 
Africans uh, we come from that brutal past of uh, 350 years of colonialism coupled with uh, 60 years of uh, apartheid uh, brutality under the apartheid regime of South Africa. And uh, uh, ours uh, coming to the United States of America is to draw on the parallels of our own struggle for liberation and that of the Palestinian people. And also highlighting the similarities when uh, we uh, speak in particular to the uh, United States of American uh, government and the administrations that supported apartheid South Africa, who continue today to, to support apartheid Israel. Uh, we uh, thank the uh, civil rights activists and the American citizenry for the freedom that we enjoy today. And uh, ours is to call upon them as they did during our own struggle for liberation in joining the anti-apartheid campaign, in the joining the Free Mandela campaign. Uh, we are calling on them to stand and be counted and do as they did for us, for the Palestinian people. So I will be uh, coming on this 75th uh, year of the catastrophe being the Nakba, which killed over 700,000 Palestinians, evicting over 3.5 million Palestinians out of their homes and forcing them into exile, into refugee camps and into the diaspora. You're, you're clearly trying to work for international solidarity. I know that one of the one of the calls internationally with Palestinian people is a call for uh, boycott, uh, divestment, and sanctions um, against Israel. Uh, here in Wisconsin, you may be familiar with this. The um, it's happened in some uh, quite a few states, unfortunately. The legislature in the state has passed a law outlawing BDS, boycott, divestment, and sanctions, and to get any state contract, including at the state university. You have to sign an oath saying you will not be involved in any boycott of um, of Israel. Can you tell us a little bit about about the importance of of that particular aspect and what people should do when it is if you live in a place where it's directly outlawed. This is uh, uh, why uh, we have uh, continuously uh, seen uh, these uh, uh, oppressive regimes utilizing legislation to uh, mute people from voicing out uh, uh, their uh, challenges that they face on a daily basis. And uh, what uh, you are witnessing there is trying to silence the people uh, from being able to have freedom of expression, freedom of speech. And therefore, uh, uh, when we, we see that, we then uh, reach out to people so that they themselves can be educated on their own right. And uh, freedom of expression and freedom of speech is a right that uh, should be protected for every individual. And I think uh, uh, when we come to understanding that as citizenry, we can then be able to be vocal without fear. And uh, in this regard, we must then ask, uh, what are we prohibiting when Palestinians are asking us to boycott, divest, as well as sanction anything that is coming from occupied Palestine or even from the apartheid Israeli regime? In, during our time, 
time in South Africa, and I will point out this simple fact that we called on the international community to boycott any fresh produce coming from South Africa. And that campaign was uh, embraced globally and even in the United States of America. Dock workers refused to offload any fresh produce from uh, apartheid South Africa. And we are then saying to you as citizenry, you need to educate yourselves as a community on what is coming onto your shelves, onto your stores, and anything that you are able to identify, you can simply boycott and alert others in the community what the Palestinians are asking of us. For example, we have a, a numerous uh, campaigns that uh, will emerge from time to time. And one I can speak on is the global boycott we have on Puma that uh, Palestinians are saying that anyone that is complicit and that is supporting the apartheid regime of uh, Israel must uh, 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 be uh, boycotted. And in our simple case in South Africa, a proud company, a South African company being Clover, that was producing all milk products, has now been bought a majority shareholder is a company from apartheid Israel. And even the workers at Clover are now asking us as activists on the ground to boycott Clover. And it is those simple things that we can do as individuals and as a collective that could go a long way in supporting the Palestinian struggle. Thank you. I know you're very busy. We, we've hit our time. I do want to give you a chance that if uh, you, you can, of course, leave if you want. I'd like to give you a chance to to talk about if, if I did not bring up anything that you wanted to say, what was anything else you want to uh, to tell our listeners? For us, uh, we want to invite everyone to come out uh, to these uh, sessions as we would be speaking directly on what we can do as individuals and as a collective in advocating for the Palestinian uh, struggle. And uh, most importantly, to identify simple things that can go a long way in ensuring that uh, uh, apartheid Israel is seen as such. And as we all know, that uh, apartheid is a crime against humanity. We need to stand and rise against it. We've been able to defeat it in South Africa and ensure that we liberate the majority of citizenry in South Africa against a minority of white supremacists. We can do what we did for South Africa. We can do for the Palestinian people. Greg, Thanks a lot for the invitation, and I look forward to seeing you during the tour in the U.S. Thank, Thank you. you. That was Mandela Mandela, member of the South African National Assembly and grandson of Nelson Mandela, talking with Greg Jaboski about his upcoming trip to Milwaukee. He will be talking at Turner Hall in Milwaukee next Monday at 6.30 p.m. It's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, 
Rob McClure. Thank you, Sean. Uh, we don't get a whole lot of perfect days here in Wisconsin, but they do happen along occasionally, especially around this time of year when we begin to get our first bit of heat, but without the humidity and biting insects that uh, inevitably follow. So hopefully you were able to get out and enjoy it a bit today because, uh, well, biting insects to the side for a moment, the closer we get to this coming weekend, the likelier we are to see precipitation. So uh, all that's as we might expect, I suppose. We hit 76 degrees this afternoon, and the uh, lovely dry air that's over us is courtesy of the departing surface high-pressure cell that descended southward out of eastern Canada on Monday, cooling us after that uh, weekend heat, at least on Sunday. The air mass has moderated since then, and although its backside circulation has veered our winds more uh, southeasterly and southerly over the past day, additionally warming us, the high itself is largely blocking the Gulf of Mexico and directing low-level moisture far out to our west into the southern plains. So we are dry here, and the dry air extends vertically as well. That's thanks to a mid-level ridge building eastward over us from the central plains, which has been developing the past couple of days in what continues to be a very a convoluted and blocky upper air pattern that we've been experiencing off and on over North America the past few weeks. And that pattern is visible this evening on the water vapor image of North America. If you want to have a look at it, we have that linked up on the WORT weather webpage. An image very typical of mid-spring there. Uh, unfortunately, it's going to make precipitation forecasts a little difficult over the coming days because it will slow the advancement of the features visible on the water vapor out to our west, namely a building upper ridge over the plains and the swirl of low pressure that's behind it over Arizona. The more that leftward turning low swirls warm air and moisture northward and northwestward ahead of it and around it, the stronger the ridge to its north and northeast over the Mississippi Valley and Midwest will become. So that low will likely um, effectively weaken itself as it tries to reach here over coming days. And as a consequence of that, the convergence and lift it provides for thunderstorms will also be weakening. But that will be at the same time as the atmosphere here, both near ground and aloft, will become increasingly moist and so primed for precipitation. So while tomorrow will almost certainly be dry, with both uh, upper and surface ridging still at work, Friday uh, we may begin to see thunderstorms, perhaps even some strong ones, starting to approach from the west but struggling to reach here, and also struggling to drop the rains through what will at that time still be a fairly dry near ground environment. And after that, the atmosphere will be much better primed for rain, uh, but timing of sub significant uh, timing of subsequent rounds of rain will be difficult to uh, ponder, given the weakening of that low as it approaches to our west on Saturday. Thunderstorms should also be uh, less likely to have severe characteristics by then, but be capable of some fairly heavy rains, giving uh, warming air aloft. Eventually, as the surface circulation stalls over Iowa on Sunday, it'll begin to ingest increasing amounts of cooler and drier air from a Canadian surface high-pressure cell, which will be pressing southward across the border at that time. So that should help stanch the rainfall as we at least get into early next week, if not by later on Sunday sometime. 
So with a few caveats in terms of the uh, timing and the precipitation amounts also, this is uh, what I think the next few days should look like. Tonight, clear sky should see uh, an increase in passing cirrus going forward, but uh, not much else, with temperatures falling back to the low 50s on southeasterly winds at 3 to 7 miles per hour. Tomorrow, generally clear sky should see some passing cirrus and mid-level clouds, but temperatures should still, I think, make the upper 70s on southeast to south winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour. Passing high clouds will become uh, more prevalent by late day or evening as activity to our south and west ramps up diurnally down in Iowa and begins to draw closer across Iowa and Minnesota. Passing clouds uh, overnight and southeasterly winds at 48 miles per per hour will hold temperatures around 60. And Friday, we may may see a a passing round of uh, showers or thunderstorms uh, probably in dying mode in the early morning hours if that activity to our west makes it in here. Uh, We may have actually a good round of uh, precipitation left over, but uh, in any event, I think it will be somewhat scattered and in dissipating mode. And those uh, showers will leave a good bit of uh, mid and high cloud cover in in their wake, holding temperatures to the low 70s on east to southeast winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour. Dew points will reach the uh, upper 50s by then, so we'll begin to feel a lot damper. We should have, I think, a fair number of dry hours, though, Friday, with passing showers perhaps returning in another wave uh, either overnight, but uh, if not, more likely Saturday, midday, or afternoon, the way it's looking, as another surge of moisture is concentrated along a final warm frontal boundary that will be approaching us from the south as it passes around this uh, dying low out to our west. Temperatures will start to uh, uh, drop to the uh, upper 50s overnight and uh, return to the 70 degree range on uh, Saturday as winds uh, begin to back a little more easterly at 8 to 12 miles per hour. And the rains may last into Sunday, but I'm uh, hopeful that despite the slow movement of this system, the cooler and drier air that will be advancing on the area from the northeast uh, will eventually bring that precipitation to an end on Sunday for a dry start to next week. At the moment, it's uh, 74 degrees degree, uh, Seventy-four degrees at the station down here on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 47. The winds are uh, quite light, uh, generally out of the south at uh, 3 to 5 miles per hour. Uh, completely clear over the station at the moment. Just a few passing strands of cirrus, and the uh, barometer's at 30.06 inches of mercury and falling. We go now to May 1969. As two more nights of riots rock downtown, and a special commission tries to find out why. Stu Levitan has the report from Mifflin Street on this week's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream. Madison in the 60s, the Mifflin Street Block Party Riots, Part 2. Sunday, May 4th, 1969, late afternoon. Tear gas lingers in the soft spring air. Rocks and bricks are strewn throughout the streets, all residue of last night's riot. Mifflanders still want a block party. Mayor Bill Dyke still says no and refuses to issue a permit. Hundreds of kids are hanging out around Mifflin and Bassett Streets. Hundreds of cops are on their way. As the crowd builds, Alderman Paul Soglin is arrested a second time for unlawful assembly. 
while standing by himself near his Bassett Street apartment. Alderwoman Alicia Ashman tries to bail him out, but jailers won't take her check. So Fire Captain and Union President Ed Durkin, thankful for Soglin's support during the illegal strike he had led three months earlier, authorizes the use of Union funds for the $507 bail. The charge is later dropped after a judge rules police did not understand the unlawful assembly statute, but Soglin is convicted on Saturday's charge of failing to follow a police order. Alderman Eugene Parks, elected just the month before as the city's first black alderman, is also arrested when he protests a resident's rough arrest. A jury finds Parks not guilty, but the council breaks with its long practice and refuses to reimburse his legal fees, which attorney Dick Cates later waves. After dark, the riot resumes as projectiles and tear gas again fill the air throughout downtown. Late that night, some Mifflin-area youth and their supporters marched to the city-county building in the vain hope of meeting with Dyke during an emergency city council meeting. Then, as sheriff's deputies turn their backs and make no effort to intervene, a horde of high school kids and other townies beat them up. After last night, Sheriff Jack Leslie says, they deserve everything they get. Police make another 55 arrests before the end of the night. Hospitals treat three officers and 35 residents and bystanders. Monday, May 5th, more of the same, only more so. Early evening, Mayor Dyke ventures to a very hostile ground zero, speaking to a jeering crowd of about a thousand from the steps of the new Mifflin Community Co-op. He rejects Soglin's demands for amnesty and gives the crowd 30 minutes to disperse. They build new barricades instead, and the third night's riot is on. Dyke's visit does not calm the situation. The Monday night fight is the worst yet. Tear gas blankets the area as trash fires are set from Langdon Street to the southeast dorms. Students not only send up a barrage of projectiles, parties unknown firebomb three city, state, and university offices. It gets so bad that Teamster bus drivers won't drive through downtown, and the bus company shuts down citywide service overnight. By the time it's all over Tuesday morning, there are shattered storefronts up and down State Street. 34 youth, 18 officers, and 12 observers or children need medical care. And Madison has again made its mark with the nation's first lifestyle riot. Things calmed down on Tuesday after a citizens group called the Committee of 30, led by attorney Shirley S. Abrahamson, convinces Dyke to withdraw the police. But tension racks the city council when an alderman from the Far East Side calls for Soglin and Parks to be expelled from the council, quote, if they are arrested for any violation during any demonstration of any nature. Parks storms out in righteous anger. Soglin pleads for a block party permit for Saturday. Even though Dyke now supports the request and praises Soglin for his, quote, desperate and significant attempt to keep things calm, the council denies the permit 17 to 3. These people have showed a lack of respect for anything honest and decent, Alderman Ralph Hornbeck says. They've also shown they plan a party, permit or no. The threatened showdown on Saturday is avoided only when Fire Captain Durkin invites everyone to his large spread out on Old Middleton Road.
Dyke provides two city buses free of charge. The Mifflin Co-op donates the beer. And about 400 Mifflanders have a pretty good party in Pig Roast. National media take note. Quote, Campus riots in many parts of the country have given some people that there are too many radicals, CBS newsman Murray Frompson reports. But perhaps in fairness, it should be said, there are too few Ed Durkins. Dyke creates an ad hoc commission of two retired Supreme Court justices and an attorney to investigate the riot. In fall, it issues a report blaming both sides and pleasing neither. The report clears the police of firing first, concluding that, quote, they did not resort to the use of tear gas until they had been pelted with missiles. But it blames the police for provoking the crowd, due to the policy police chief Wilbur Emery adopted after the Dow protest in 1967 of showing overwhelming force before it was needed. Next to what it called the, quote, underlying antagonism which existed before the incidents, the report finds, quote, the second additional precipitating factor was the bringing of police in riot gear into the Mifflin Street area before there had been any actual violence. And once the violence began, the report states, quote, training proved inadequate in the case of a certain few officers who during the disorders engaged in beatings, improper use of riot sticks, and indiscriminate and improper use of tear gas. More and better training in this field is needed. State Street businesses with smashed windows and stolen inventory file $8,000 in claims against the city, under a state law making the city liable for damages in case of, quote, injury to persons or property by a mob or riot. The day after Christmas, the council refuses to honor the claims. At a time when the Badger football team had gone winless over its past two seasons, sports columnist Roundy Coughlin offers a unique perspective on the riot. Quote, If the football team could get a march on like a lot of the students did, he writes in the Wisconsin State Journal, they would go to the Rose Bowl. A few days later, in a sibling city a few hundred miles north of the Rose Bowl Stadium, a legendary underground newspaper pays respects on its front page. On Wisconsin, the Berkeley Bar proclaims, and that's this week's Madison the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WORT news team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. And this award-winning news team could use you if you want to work on the show. We need some more reporters, especially on Wednesday. And we provide all the training, so get in touch with the station during business hours if you're interested. It's a great deal. Your headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Special thanks to our feature contributors Greg Jaboski and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kateman engineered tonight's broadcast. Nate Weggy helped produce the newscast. And Shelly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcast. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night.